0: my friends and welcome to episode 22 of you don't know jack. I am your host Sarah Dimio, bringing you everything you need to know in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. And this is a very special episode because this this is our lost episode that I have been teasing for a few months now. I don't actually remember how long it's been because it's been that long. And actually, I have the president of Clovercrest Media Group here with me right now because I felt that you all kind of deserved an explanation as to my extra long absence uh, this time. I know that in the past I've missed a few weeks here and there, but at this point I think it's been almost six weeks. I know it's been over a month, something like that, right? It's like, been about six weeks. Yeah, you know. yeah. So we're glad that you're back.
1: You've obviously had a lot going on. You've been through a lot and um obviously, you know, we're we're we love you You've been with Clovercrest since day one and uh, you know, I know you've been through through some trying times. I, appreciate I don't know how much that. you want to get into it or well, not, but uh, we're glad that you're back, and, and I hope everybody can understand the reason behind your hiatus. Yeah,
0: and it's um it's it's been a lot of different stuff going on. I um started about um less a little less than a year ago, started a new full time job, so I've been um you know juggling that, and I'm working on other projects too because I've mentioned multiple times on this show that I'm also a filmmaker and i'm trying to get back into that and uh reinvigorate my youtube page and um i got all excited yesterday because uh i just bought myself a drone so i'm all excited to (laughs) learn how
2: to learn how to use that too
0: and um and some other stuff too like um i never really uh let anybody know this but about a year and a half ago my dad passed away so that's been I mean, we're 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 all fine, but it's still sort of a thing that we have to deal with a lot, too. Obviously, you know, Um, but I I would say for the past month or so, I really, really thought I was going to be able to come in each week to record and pretty much each week, Joe, I would text you and be like, "Okay, I'm definitely ready. I'm going to be there Tuesday and pretty much without fail each week. I would text you the morning of and be like. I need another week at this point, um. But um, I have. I, I you were kind of expecting it went, went toward at that point. I would assume, right?
1: Uh, last week, honestly, when you uh, said you were coming, I planned on you not coming. Yeah, and yeah. and then you canceled, and I was like, I'm. Uh, yeah, but this week you were pretty intent on you were coming in, and you wanted me to join you so we could again sort of just lay the groundwork for. You know why it's why it's been a, a longer hiatus because the podcasts are hard to do. And I don't mm-hmm. know if people understand that you put a lot of work uh, into your show. You also have to watch the movies.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. Like when I first started this podcast, um, it was totally different from the last podcast that I did, which was uh, I've mentioned to you guys before. I did a true crime podcast called Faded Out, which was following missing persons cold cases but not just missing people like children so and that was really heavy and i wanted to do something that was more fun and which this is but at the same time it at the i have to i have to watch a movie pretty much every week and basically write a full term paper on it each week and (laughs) then and then perform it in an entertaining fashion (laughs) Which uh, is more, more a little more work than I accounted for when I first and got started. And even more
1: work than what you just made it sound like, as complicated as all that was. There really is so much more to it, and so you know it's not easy. And you have a life and a career, and and uh, but we're glad that you're uh, you're back, and it's gonna be a good episode.
0: Yeah, I think I think that I'm ready. I told you coming in that it's like I, that, that I was nervous, and I don't. I was like I don't know why I'm nervous today, but I think it's just because. It's been so long. I've I've forgotten how to podcast. I've forgotten everything <laughs> I've ever known about podcasting.
1: Well, you're in the right place.
0: <laughs> and I actually said to you a few weeks ago. I asked you, "Am I your most problematic podcaster?" And. You said no. There's 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 one person more problematic than me.
1: It's my wife, yeah. who's also a podcaster. Yeah. But yeah, you're you're right up there. But no, if we we love you again and and you you always have our support and and again, I'm I'm just glad that you're back in your in studio. And here it is. All right. Let's get into it. As you just heard
0: me say, this is finally our lost episode. We are talking about a safe place. Finally, now we had reached the year 1975 which was a landmark year for jack we've talked about the who's tommy we've talked about michelangelo antonioni's the passenger and in our last episode we talked about the fortune co-starring warren beatty and Stockard channing but before we move on to the main event of that year the film that would get Jack his first of three Academy Awards and live on in history as one of the greatest movies ever made. We have to go back to 1971. The Bane of My Existence, people. Henry Jaglum's 1971 indie feature. A Safe Place stars Tuesday Weld, Orson Welles. Not kidding. Orson Welles has a key role in this also philip proctor and a featured role by our man jack now i managed to get a blu-ray player it was a gift actually that would play the disc that i got i think i mentioned this before but i'll tell the story again going way back to when we were covering jack's work in 1971 i had fully intended to put out an episode on today's film in the correct order in our timeline This film, though, is tied with Flight to Fury as the most difficult of Jack's projects to find. However, I did find it. I found it as part of a Blu-ray box set from the Criterion Collection, titled America Lost and Found, the BBS Story. BBS Productions, of course, is the production company founded by Bob Rafelson, Burt Schneider, and Steve Blauner, and it was originally raybert productions all but one of the films in this box set involve jack we've got head easy rider five easy pieces drive he said a safe place the last picture show which i've never seen and the king of marvin gardens so i thought i was all set i borrowed a blu-ray player so i could watch a safe place in a timely fashion i get this player home i put the disc in And nothing happened, except a brief panic attack. I'm thinking, maybe it's me. Maybe there's something wrong with my hookup. So I bring the player back, try it there. The disc still doesn't play. Okay, now we have an issue. But until I could find a solution, the only option was to just move on to the next film, which was, of course, The King of Marvin Gardens. But like I said... I did get a new Blu-ray player, and this time the disc did, in fact, play. Still don't know what the issue was with that treasonous last machine, but today we are back, and we are back on track. Now, the thing is, though, guys, I wish I could tell you that I felt that A Safe Place was a really great hidden gem, but look, I gave it a chance. I watched it three separate times and it just didn't do it for me as a great film. But I will take you through it and I'll explain why. And I'll try to gauge for you what I think the director's intent was here. A Safe Place was written and directed by Henry Jaglom. This is a name that we have heard before on this podcast as an actor. He played Warren in 1968's Psych Out, as well as Conrad in 1971's Drive, he said. A Safe Place was Jaglam's directorial debut, which does not surprise me. By which I mean, you can tell this was made by a first-time director. It was produced by Burt Schneider of BBS Productions. The film stars Tuesday Weld as a very flighty, immature flower child type of girl who goes by two names, Susan and Noah. But for our purposes, I'll call her Noah because that seems to be the name that the majority of other characters use when addressing her. It seems to me that the name Noah is the name that she chose for herself because, you know, it's a flower child thing. I believe unless I missed something that the only person who refers to her as her given name, Susan, is the magician, played by Orson Welles. But before I move on to the rest of the cast, I want to point out a little piece of trivia that was totally unplanned, but I love the way that this worked out. So I know it was a while ago, but you remember in our last episode, we talked about 1975's The Fortune, which co-starred Warren Beatty. Well, I feel like If I had to shoehorn a safe place somewhere into this series, it's fitting that it would go right after the fortune because, and very few people will know this, Warren Beatty and Tuesday Weld have a shared credit as we ease all the way back to 1959 to the first season of a sitcom that lasted for four seasons called The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, also just called Dobie Gillis. Doby was played by actor Dwayne Hickman. Warren Beatty played Milton, and Tuesday Weld played Talia. Milton and Talia both had short lived story arcs within this series, but as you can imagine, Milton was the handsome high school jock, and Talia was the blonde beauty that Doby was constantly pining for. But of course, he had to compete with Milton for her affections. So for that reason, it felt to me like now would be a good spot to sneak in our Lost episode, a film starring Tuesday Weld. And just as a little side note, though I haven't gotten to Jack's part yet in this movie, you can reasonably assume what his purpose is in here, right? So can we just have a moment with how Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty seemed to be sharing the girls long before they even shared the screen together okay anyway the magician is played by orson wells my initial feeling when i first learned of a safe place was how in the hell did a first time director get someone like orson wells but at the same time I thought about it, and I remember a year or two ago, I was watching a documentary on Netflix about Orson Welles that you might have heard of. It's called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. It's really about a film that Welles had been working on in the last years of his life, which wasn't completed until 2018. That's 33 years after he died. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. And it was in production for a whopping 48 years. But They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, the documentary, was really fascinating and I highly recommend it. It talked a lot about Orson Welles's life in his older years. Remember, at only 26 years old, he wrote, directed, and starred in Citizen Kane. About 17 years later, he wrote and directed and starred in another huge hit, touch of evil. And then in the years to follow, nothing ever really matched the great works of his early years. So he spent his later years trying to make that comeback. But obviously it kept getting delayed and kept getting delayed. And add to that, that he wasn't in great health. So it became difficult to find work in between during those years. So I can only speculate that that's why someone as high profile as Orson Welles wasn't an impossible get at that time, being that it was the early 70s. The next character is Fred, played by Philip Proctor. Fred is Noah's primary love interest, the stable one, or seemingly so. And then we have Mitch, played by Jack. Mitch quite frankly, is the side piece and he knows it and gladly assumes that role as Noah appears to also be his side piece. I have not been able to find any backstory on how Jack got this role, but I think it's really very simple because this was a BBS production and Jack was very much a part of that company of characters in the BBS periphery. So following projects like Head, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Jack's directorial debut with Drive, he said, and then soon to be The King of Marvin Gardens, it's expected Jack would be given a supporting role in Henry Jaglum's first time directing. So with that, there's one more supporting character that I want to point out. And she doesn't have a particularly large role, but she does have one scene that I think is pivotal. And that is Gwen Wells as Barry. No relation to Orson Welles, I checked. But she's mainly a background character until she has one memorable monologue, which I will get to. Now, A Safe Place debuted at the New York Film Festival on October 15th, 1971. Now, here's the thing. Even though Henry Jaglum is credited for writing the screenplay, it doesn't seem to me that there was that much of a screenplay. I would say at least half of the movie came across to me as improvised. What further confirms this to me is something that I read on Wikipedia, saying that filming this project racked up 50 hours of raw footage. 50 hours of footage. 50 hours. Five-zero. Five-zero. For a first project, man, that is too much. The first feature film that I ever made was a documentary, and I ended up with a little over 30 hours, which was still insanely too much, at least for what you're trying to do. And when I tell you that A Safe Place got ripped apart by critics, Vincent Canby was a film critic for the New York Times, And I read a few quotes from him that I think sum it up pretty well. He calls it a, quote, superficial case history of a suicide whose narrative pretends to be a lot more complex, end quote. He also says the film, quote, reveals the director's apparent adoration of his star. That's Tuesday Weld whom he studies in every possible light and color combination and in every possible camera setup, often orchestrated with fine, corny songs out of the 1940s and 1950s, end quote. Though I can't say I blame him in that regard, Tuesday Well does make for an ideal muse. She's your quintessential beautiful blonde girl with classic features, but it is true. I would say there's an overuse of these long musical montages with close-ups on her face, gazing off into the distance, or gazing into the camera, and so on and so forth. I think the film is also wildly inconsistent. From beginning to end, the timeline is non-linear. There's flash forwards, then flashbacks, then flash even further forward, then further back than the first time. And this is what the critic was saying about how the narrative pretends to be a lot more complex because this is not by any stretch a complicated story all on its own. It's the timeline that deliberately makes it complicated. Susan slash Noah lives in the heart of New York City. She's a fully grown woman who never grew up. And that is why we have the title A Safe Place, because she constantly retreats to her childhood in search of a safe place. As a child, she met the magician in Central Park and watched in amazement as he did little tricks like make a ball, levitate, little parlor trick type of stuff. And one thing that he did for her, and this is important, he gave her a magic box which we'll learn more about in a second. As she becomes an adult, that's when she becomes involved with Fred, as well as her fair-weather friend, Mitch. And the film opens on a tight close-up of the magician who delivers this line.
1: Last night, in my sleep,
2: I dreamed that I was sleeping. And dreaming in that sleep that I had awakened, I fell asleep.
0: And then we fade into Noah in her apartment, and it's filled with friends of hers. Her apartment is heavily decorated, even including a jukebox. She saunters over to the jukebox and starts it and the opening credits begin. During this opening, we cut back to a montage of Noah as a little girl, then known as Susan, sitting in her apartment window, looking down on the magician practicing his tricks in the park. We see the girl again, and it's Noah as an adult, sitting in the same position. We go back and forth the person in the window a little girl in one shot and noah in the next in the next scene after the credits noah is sitting at a table alone at an outdoor cafe by the shore and she's gazing out onto the water watching the geese and the boats go by this nerdy dull looking kind of guy approaches and asks if the seat across from her is taken she doesn't answer just keeps looking out onto the water he takes a seat anyway and then we cut to the two of them mid conversation the conversation is weird but it's it's cute it's very flirty they're both leaning in across from each other giggling and Noah is covering her nose with her hand I
2: have no reason to be ashamed of your nose well I'm just not sure what it looks like after the operation Leave me, I will be your eyes. Will you be my mirror? Yes. Will I mean, you tell me the truth? I will tell if you If I look you're... ugly, will you tell me I can take I it? I swear strong. To you, I will tell you if you're beautiful or ugly. You're sure? Yes. Please expose your nose to me. I can't, my hand you... is stuck to my that face. That damn surgeon! <laughs> take take off your nose. Why? Without my glasses on, your nose is beautiful. tell me yeah tell me yeah tell you what tell me anything you want the first time that I saw you professor (laughs) I knew that we had to complete this experiment together
0: so he asks her out for a movie that night and in the following scene we see them back at her apartment and he offers to look up times for the movies but she says you know I don't really feel like a movie so she instead takes him into her room to show him her magic box. Don't be a pervert. It's not a euphemism. She literally shows him her little wooden magic box that I just told you about, given to her by the magician. They lay down like a couple of little kids on her bed, and she takes the little box into her hands. and She tells Fred, you put something in that means very much to you and you make a wish, and lock it. And as she explains this, we see flashes of Noah and the magician in Central Park. Then we have our first flash of our man Jack as Mitch. And what was this very wholesome seeming moment is now interrupted with a shot of Noah and Mitch feverishly making out. Feverishly, let me tell you. And that's when we cut back to Noah and Fred examining this innocent little magic box. The next scene shows Noah up on the roof of the apartment building with a large gathering of her friends. And it looks like they've created a makeshift Ouija board, by which I mean it's a large glass table with letters handwritten on it. And they're all seated around the table with their hands on this one upside down drinking glass. But they're not moving the glass slowly the way you're supposed to with a real ouija board they're swaying back and forth laughing the whole time as they screech the glass against the glass table back and forth and they stop right around the time that fred comes up and joins them but then A still very cheerful Noah pulls Fred aside and she invites him to go with her to the Museum of Natural History the next day, to go inside the spaceship simulator. And she's super excited about this, she's like, you get to go inside this spaceship and go up and it's just like being in outer space. So she asks him for his phone number. And he gives it to her, but she looks back at him confused, and then another bizarre conversation ensues. But this one is less cute and more just absurd. She's confused because he's telling her a sequence of numbers, no words involved. She says, what do you mean? You need to have a word in front of it. He says back to her, what word? This is just the number they gave me. So to illustrate what she means, she pulls him over to a phone booth set up on the roof, and she points out to him the little letters that correlate with each number. Well, they should make up a word. These letters should form to make some unique word instead of just a sequence of numbers. Yeah.
2: See? Okay. Now, your number is four, so you could be, oh, let's say, M-I, right? You could have... Am I midnight, too, or, or whatever? Yeah, well, there isn't any such thing as midnight, too, and you, and you said you didn't have a phone. Oh, well, you if, if you don't phone. like midnight, we could give you another number. Let's see, it could be, uh, O. Yeah? It could be ug. Um, like ug nice too, That's or nice. it could be, um, N.I. could be nice, too, or it could be, um, It could be M-M-H. All right, look, none of these are (sighs) real. What difference does it make? What difference does it make what uh, the letters are if you've got the numbers? But that's just it. That's just it? Well, yeah. I mean, we never used to have just numbers. We always had real things. And then it meant something. (sighs) You know, like if a kid in you at school had the same number like Susquehanna then you had something in common and it was it was really nice. You know? Yeah. And oh sometimes somebody'd really kill you with some number like Pershing. Pershing. Or or Algonquin was really, really great. Butterfield. Wow. That was a good one. Butterfield? No, 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 Butterfield wasn't too good. I knew a lot of kids with Butterfield and it just didn't mean anything. Well, I don't know, I I used to have a... No. Oh. Oh, oh, Olympia. Oh, that was... Really, really incredible because you always got this picture of clouds in your head and mountains. Kiss my neck, please. And and all of these wild oh gods. That's why right. I it again. Mmm, mmm. Plaza was really great, too. Plaza really does something, too. Yeah, I to always thought of, oh, fountains <laughs> and everything and lights yeah. and they pink and yellow. There was another one too, it was really great, called Gramercy. Bryant, wow. Bryant, Bryant, uh, Bryant, like a, like a, a, man. Bryant, Bryant. Well, I mean Bryant. It's good, but Bryant, it was, it was good. All right. It just, it. You don't like mine. You
1: <laughs> like yours, but. No,
2: it was good. It was okay. good. It reminded you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was
2: so English, Brian. Oh, monocles yeah, and spats and everything like that. You well, know. You, I always liked Butterfield. Okay. I mean, you you see what I mean? At least, at least you could you could like Butterfield, but. How can how can you like six four? You can't.
1: Sure, I see. Kind see? of.
2: Cause it's all on the dial.
1: Okay. I
2: <laughs> six four M I two, oh eight one seven. What is it? Give me give me a thing.
1: Um. Mirage.
2: Mirage 2. Mirage 2. That's beautiful. That's (laughs) really beautiful.
0: Then on to the next scene. The next day, Noah is looking down and Fred asks her what's the matter. And she's upset because the Museum of Natural History isn't natural. Flying through space with all of these switches. And she admits to Fred that when she was little, she could fly literally fly to the top of a tree. And Fred, being the practical type, says, there's no way you could fly. Maybe you dreamed it. But Noah insists, and she gets more upset about it, saying, no, it wasn't a dream. I could fly. My brother saw me. And then we see Noah and the magician together at the zoo. And he's talking about his wish. He says, someday... I want to make something disappear. And we cut to him trying to make the llamas disappear, closing his eyes tight and opening them wide. But of course, the llamas don't disappear. This doesn't stop him from continuing to try, which I'll get to in a second. And then we have our first real scene with Mitch. Now, it's just Noah and Mitch up on the roof, walking, kind of circling each other. Mitch is a user of people. And like I said, he makes no secret of it. He comes right out and tells Noah that he likes her because she is simple-minded. How are We're
2: you, Noah? Okay. Well, is it all right uh, is it all right that I came at this this time? Yes, it's more than all right. you missed me? Uh, yes. Yes, I have missed you. Do you want to know why? Yeah. Because you're very simple-minded. Screw you. (gasps) You know why I love simple-minded people? it's real easy to make them do whatever you want them to
0: this is happening while all the other friends including fred are down in noah's apartment all lounging on the bed this scene in the apartment includes the other supporting character that i mentioned earlier barry played by gwen wells she lays there on the bed with fred and the others sitting all around her as she goes into this story she talks about walking home alone at night In the dark, beginning to feel worried that the men she was passing by were watching her. And as she kept going, she kept getting more and more scared, like they were going to rape her or kill her. And as she gets into the story, she starts getting really emotional. Tears start streaming down her face. And she starts talking about pain, like suddenly she could feel their pain. And have you ever just had so much pain? That you just couldn't bear it. I feel like the director wants us to derive a connection here because we keep cutting somewhat abruptly back and forth between her telling of this story and Mitch and Noah up on the roof. And at that moment, an intercut of the magician in the zoo trying to make an orangutan disappear. And then we jump cut to what we caught a glimpse of earlier a close up of Mitch and Noah, feverishly making out on a chaise lounge, up on the roof and in the rain. And the rain, of course, is not a hindrance. It only adds to it. We've got the rain. Hair is getting all stringy. Noah arches her back and Mitch starts biting her neck. It's like, okay, y'all can relax is what you can do. And as we get a shot from further back, we see Fred, sitting on the end of the chaise, watching the two of them. But that's another confusing thing about this film, is that it's very hard to tell to what degree things are real versus imaginary. Because Fred sitting at the end of the chaise, I don't think it's meant that he was literally there. Because he's down in the apartment, consoling this other girl, Barry, as she's recounting her story. And in that same vein of what's real and what's imaginary, I don't know if every time we see the adult Noah and the magician together, that that's meant to be taken literally. Because what if she only knew the magician when she was a child? Which would make sense, as he's the only one who addresses her as Susan, what if all the times we see them together are old memories of the magician and she's placing her adult self into the memories in place of her very young self? I really hope that made sense because I do think there's a strong possibility that that's what Jaglom intended with the scenes involving the magician. Another reason why I think this is what we're supposed to interpret is because In another quick scene during this whole montage, an adult Noah reaches into the magician's coat pocket and she takes out her magic box. When the magician opens up the little box, he pulls out a rainbow made out of paper. It's a Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is what's inside this magic box. So you see how this all starts to tie together. And then we cut back to barry laying across noah's bed wrapping up her story talking about taking sleeping pills because she was in so much pain and she says it never stops i just get more isolated we move on to another scene with the animals at the zoo noah and the magician are seated together on a bench gazing over at the animals he tells her they're dreaming They're dreaming of their homes. The seals, dreaming of the ocean. The camels, dreaming of sand. And the magician guesses that Noah, or Susan as he calls her, is dreaming of the sky. Because think back, we have to remember a few scenes earlier, Noah admitting to Fred that when she was a little girl, she could fly. In the next scene, it's 4 a.m. and Noah and Fred are in the apartment alone. Noah is on the phone, and she invites Mitch to come up, not concerned that Fred is literally right there. So when Mitch gets in, he and Noah sit close together on the couch. It's quiet and very flirty, and poor Fred is treated like a third wheel and doesn't seem to have a clue as to what to do with himself. This is another instance of everything seeming very improvisational. I would not be surprised if you were to tell me this scene was not scripted, that the director just gave them all a premise and just said, here's point A, I need you to get it to point B, go. So. What's
2: doing? What am I doing? Yeah. Oh, same uh, things that I'm usually doing when you see me. Oh. Yeah. Bad. Yeah, bad. I guess bad. That's a fair way to call it. Did she throw you out? Did she throw me out? (laughs) (laughs) No. Again? No. No, she didn't throw me out. Robert? Robert? I thought maybe you'd like... Oh, yeah. is that? Like, no, no, yeah. like, what? No, it, no, it's, it's Mitch. Uh, Mitch, oh, sorry. So I, I heard you say Robert. Would you like something? It's just club soda. It's all we, we don't got, have like. any wine to celebrate. I don't know if there's a bottle out there or not. You didn't. No, you didn't. Seven. Mm-hmm. Quinine water. <laughs> Quinine water. I <laughs> I all that I could We could get some at four o'clock wine? in the morning. I, I don't think I really want to go out. Uh <laughs> it's, yeah, it's I, been I, Yeah. It's been a little while since we've seen each other. Yeah, I imagine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> been out of town or something? No, I just uh drop in from time to time, you know. I haven't uh, you know, it's so late, up and around late. Night <laughs> 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 time drop in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Punch in the old clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Four o'clock in the
2: morning. It's real yeah. good to see I'm glad that you're
1: out
2: here. <laughs> uh, Did drop in. What? Uh... Well, you're sure to find her in at four in the morning. As <laughs> opposed <laughs> yeah. yeah. like well, to, yeah, like eight Four is a little bit odd, but. Uh, it's worked before. Do you mind um just leaving right. us alone for a while? You won't do it. Yeah. All right, I'll be back in the back room in two Okay. Well, I'll be in the back. I got some stuff I want to do. All way. right. Please make yourself at Great. Okay. Thanks a lot. I know you didn't. Oh, no, he's, he's, no, he's okay.
0: After Fred sheepishly leaves, Mitch and Noah lean into each other, begin to kiss, until we hear Fred call from the other room saying he has, in fact, found a bottle of wine, which he brings back into the living room.
2: Have a little bit of it, really, You know, it's a nice water. Okay, I just need a bottle <laughs> of your phone. Quinine water, isn't it's you not know, all, all that great, really. You do drink? You don't have ulcers or right anything like that. Right? No, I don't drink too much, but uh, I'll uh, I'll drink a little wine with you. Oh, la fin de la bouteille. Dead soldier. I hear. I didn't.
1: Shame Madeira, Medea.
2: I don't How private can be in just yeah. Camp is trying to be a host. Have a good sleep do this i can't do this right i can't do this i can't i can't do this what I, mean, I feel bad about this person coming in and out like this you know i mean i just identify with the position you know how is that how do i identify with it you know well, but, what what well, happened well i mean it, oh that's what happened you walked in and Rita was with somebody. Is oh, no no, no. no, no. No, Rita's not with anybody. Rita. Yeah, I'll no, Rita is not with anybody. And you don't usually come to see me unless. I come to Rita see Rita something or other. You know? I come to see you because I want to come and see you.
0: After Noah kicks Fred out a second time, he grabs a box full of pictures and other toys, trinkets, and whatnot and he starts tearing them up and tossing them into the fireplace. Mitch and Noah have now escalated to making out on the floor in the living room. And at that precise moment, Fred comes in again and proclaims that he's leaving. He leaves through the front door, slams it behind him, and after a moment, he re-enters to proclaim again that he's leaving. Mitch and Noah, unbothered, continue to make out and giggle on the floor This escalates further, though that much happens off screen. When we next see them, they're still on the floor. We only see them from the shoulders up and we can tell their clothes are off. Mitch lights up a cigarette and I couldn't help but notice that after he lights it, he turns back towards Noah, cigarette in his mouth, and they're super close together. So the end of the cigarette, the ash, is legitimately about an inch away from her face. But she doesn't even notice. She just continues to wistfully gaze up at him. And he lays there nonchalantly and tells this story about killing his ex. There's no reason to believe that he's serious. But at this point, who knows with this movie? And Noah's expression doesn't waver. She just asks, did you? And if I am remembering this correctly, because it is a little foggy, he responds with something to the effect of, does it matter? The movie ends with Noah sitting in a bubble bath with a lot of candles and a glass of wine. And the ending is entirely up for interpretation. Noah is clearly having an episode. She starts talking to herself about her own pain and even starts to sing. So softly, you can almost not even hear it. To the tune of Rain, Rain, Go Away, except she goes, pain, pain, go away, come again another day. And it trails off like that. And she goes from being very soft to being very loud, shouting into the air, no, no, no so this is my interpretation the first time i watched this movie all the way through my impression of the ending was that noah committed suicide in the bathtub and that might sound very dark but remember she has a very disturbed mind disconnects from reality alienates the people who get close to her and i got this impression before i read anything that the critics had to say And keep in mind, Vincent Canby of the New York Times even said, it's a superficial case history of a suicide. So even if the film is meant to be open-ended, where anyone can come up with any number of outcomes, I do think that route could at the very least be a highly possible one. So from what I can tell, A Safe Place doesn't seem to have ever had a commercial release. There's no box office info to be found. The movie is unrated, and the only release date that I know of was its initial release in October 1971 at the New York Film Festival. It is a really, really difficult find. The only way that I know of to get your hands on it is to go and get you an America Lost and Found the BBS Story box set from the Criterion Collection, if you have that kind of money to burn. If you are in the market to do that, maybe you will find something that I missed. If the film were more readily available, I would absolutely, in that case, say yes, watch it for yourself, see what you get out of it. But I have to agree with the critics. It's a pretty simple story of a girl who never grew up and wants desperately to go back to her childhood and leaves a lot of broken relationships in her path. But it's made to look more complicated than it is, with the constant jumping backward and forward in the timeline. Far be it from me to ever encourage anything illegal, but... If you can steal a copy or find a download online, I'm just saying you can at least explore those options. So in the next episode of You Don't Know Jack, it's a big one. We are reviewing 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, finally, Jack's first Oscar win, Until then, make sure you're subscribed to You Don't Know Jack wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a good rating. Please follow us on the socials, You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit Clovercrestmedia.com and discover over 40 other great original podcasts. So until next week, guys... I'm Sarah Demio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.